0: You are listening to Circle of Hope's Sunday Meeting Podcast. This talk was given at 2007 Frankfurt Avenue. For more information, visit us at circleofhope.net. Some people have told me I'm extremely online. This is a trademark, capital E, capital O there. And one of the things I've noticed in my extreme onlineness is there's a tendency for some people to be really sensitive about how their uh, ch- the, their favorite childhood Disney movies are redone. There's a lot of intensity around this subject. Maybe you've noticed it Disney recently announced that uh, Hallie Bailey, this woman up here is cast as Ariel in The Little Mermaid, right this, uh, this reimagination of the classic cartoon movie. And they tell you to never read the comment section. I did, and there's a, there's some internet outrage happening because of this choice. Now, I think some internet outrage is fake because you can pretty much say whatever you want without a ton of accountability. So, and and your inhibitions are lowered because there's relative anonymity, and so you can say wild things. And people, but, but people were very upset. You know, I don't. You know, I'm trying to give them the benefit of the doubt and say, "No, you can't possibly mean what you just said. How could that be true?" So I think you just want to say things. So that's maybe maybe I'm, maybe that's naive of me, but I'm trying to extend a little humanity. Um, but they were really upset. They didn't think that the uh, Dutch mermaid could be anything other than a red-haired white girl. Right? That's that's how it worked. Even though. Like that, I mean, there's all sorts of different kinds of Dutch people too. So, like, I don't, I mean, I'm trying to figure out where it is, you know. I was kind of surprised there was such a commitment to the race of the mermaid. You know, why can't they, someone joked, why can't they just cast a real mermaid, right? And so, I, I, you might be getting the idea about how uh, interesting this is, right? Or problematic it is, or, or, or even, even, even the forms don't fit together very well. I think, I think I'm trying to extend the benefit of that. I think some of the, some of the outrage is about uh, implicit bias, um, class oppression, the advancement of, and progress of society that leaves people behind or leaves people like feeling like they're behind, like something's moving ahead of them faster than they can. But I, but I think another part of it is the requirement for some people to insist upon explicitly how things are supposed to work. They have an idea for how something is supposed to work and if it doesn't work according to how they imagined it to, it disrupts something in them and um, frustrates them. They have a commitment, and you could say an inflexible commitment, to what they think of as correct or what they think of as right. The Little Mermaid is a red-haired white girl forever, and if you change the story, that really, that changes my whole reality. And so, I'm sympathetic I'm sympathetic to this point of view because I think that a lot of us need security, grounding, attachment, to feel secure, to feel known, and it's conceivable that a, a childhood movie has that sort of resonance for you. You know, we need parents that are there for us, that are consistent in predictable ways. For example, and if they aren't, that can change a lot of us and how we feel, and it can be painful. You know, we're of course resilient, and so we we figure out how how we're going to do it, even with our um, imperfect parents. But I'm trying to understand a commitment to how things are and how they always were, and how that can plague us. You know, I don't, I don't, you know, and I don't, I didn't, I didn't myself ask any of the uh, outraged commenters about their upbringing or their childhood or anything like that. I, so I don't have any like data particularly to prove this highly speculative thought that I have. Um, I didn't engage that much. You know it just seemed a little like it's too hot you know I'm not touching that pan. so, so I didn't do that but I, I'm sympathetic um, to the point of view or as I'm trying to. Because on the face of it, it's peculiar. It's unusual to project our need for consistency, predictability, reliability onto the whole world so that nothing ever changes so that we feel secure, right? That's a, that's a pretty big ask. Um, but and it's particularly evident that something else could be going on when you're yelling at strangers on the Internet about a fictional representation of a mythical creature, right? So there's a lot of, like... Steps to get there before you think. I'm really concerned about the color of her skin. You know, I don't like that. That seems unusual to me. So something's up. Something is. Uh, it, something's up, and it's not strictly prejudice. You know, I it, I think prejudice is incorporated, but it seems a little bit too. Well, I mean, my instinct is just to be like, yeah, they're racist. I'm moving on. You know, and 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 that could be that simple, I guess. But there could be something else happening, and I want to hold out some thought for what that might be, because I'm trying to understand. People, I'm trying to understand how this thing works, how people work, and how I can I, how I can live in the world. Um, and I'm extending that to how people view their faith and how God is working in the world. Uh, people have written volumes about throughout time about the precise nature and being of God in the world, and have exact and formulaic understandings of how this is all supposed to work. And I'm, I'm, I, I like a lot of those people that wrote those things. I engage with them, I connect with them, I learn from them. And, and, and they uh, reduce things down to doctrinal, uh, matter, as a matter of doctrine, minutiae, very tiny details about God, right? Uh, the being in whom all life is born, right? That holds the whole world together. So, big idea, minute details that we know beyond a shadow of a doubt. This is how it's working. And I understand the need for that kind of theology because some people hold on so tightly, they, they need something to hold on very tightly to. They need something that can't be disturbed. And so my intention, even with folks like that, is to hold them next to me to understand them, to connect. You know, I, I, uh, I think there's room for that sort of understanding in the world and I, uh, about how the world works, that kind of concreteness and I can learn something from it too, and so I want to be generous with how I include and love and connect with people that think differently than me or uh, need a different uh, view of God than I have. You know, I have close friends and family that need to have a view like that to uh, cope with their lives. I remember I talked to my mom about this. She was going through a hard time, and she told me, she didn't say these exact words, but she said something like, she would never say words like this, but she said, I need a meticulously sovereign God. She, and she means a God who controls everything. I want everything to be in God's hands because I'm going through a really difficult time in my life, and if God doesn't have a better plan for it or a bigger idea for it or like the uh, Paul says in Romans, isn't working this out to a greater good, I don't know what I would do. I'm, I'm putting my faith in that, and I think that's what's going to happen. Now... If that view of God was disrupted for her, her life would be thrown into disarray. You know, her faith would be spun apart if she started to change that. So even though that kind of view of God can be challenging for me for a variety of reasons, you know, the, the theology student interrupting the, you know, grieving mother to say, well, actually, it is not that helpful. And so I want to be sensitive to someone else's experience and how they need God and hold space for them. I want to listen with empathy without jumping to judgment. And I think that sort of posture is important for people at lots of um, points in their lives, stages of the faith, and so on. Um, and I'm okay with that. For me, some concreteness, some clarity, some definitions, and some rules are helpful and were helpful for me. In, um, when I was younger, and sometimes even now, in periods of stress too, some some definition can be helpful. You know, if I'm talking to fourteen-year-olds uh, about faith, I probably don't shroud it in mystery and confusion. You know, um, the way that I might normally do it, because they need some basics, they need some idea, they need some uh, concrete thoughts, and I, and I I'm okay with uh, expressing that widely people need something to stand on. And the work of Christian theologians over centuries and our tradition, which is long, is one that can provide comfort for people. It wasn't written to comfort, but some people are reassured by, the pros- by this idea that there's some tradition, there's some um, grounding, there's some rootedness, and I, I'm, I'm rooted in the same tradition. Of course, many of us find that such rigidity doesn't really lead, obviously, to a lot of flexibility. And so, though it may be preserving some, some people's faith, that doesn't work for everyone. You know, Like it worked for my mom, but for some of us, a rigid, unflexible faith can easily break, especially when it endures any stress or trauma. And so we need a different kind of faith that can withstand some difficulty. Otherwise, as we grow, our faith doesn't, does it because it's so contained. And we can lose our faith in pursuit of something new, you know. This particularly happens to like moms' children, right? And so we're working something out together. And the main project, or one of the main ideas, is let's 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 tend to the delicate plants of faith that we have, kind of feeding them and nourishing them with the things that help that their particularity, and not assign, um, not assign one or the other, you know, um, a uniformity. Of, uh, of our thought, you know, of our faith, of our theology, so that we can hold together a diversity of people. That's the idea. What I wanna work with today is, the, is this idea that we can hold all things together as we form a diverse body of Christ that extends beyond even our communal expression in Circle of Hope. Circle of Hope, we have a particular expression but I'm connecting to the greater body of faith and of Christ. So we're, 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 we're collectively revealing the kingdom of God to the world and doing our part in it. That's the idea. It's a collective, mutual, communal action. We're less concerned, I hope, with who is right and who is wrong than doing our part in this, what I would call, collective art project. This collective art project is purposed to reveal and extend the kingdom of God to the world. We'll get to this in a moment, but it's like illuminating the world a little bit more to what God has done in the world and is doing in the world. Extension and revelation of the kingdom of God. We've been talking about how to mimic God as an artist over the last few weeks. We talked about being a creative and creating something in order that we might be a signpost for God in the world. Or we tell stories different kinds of stories to different kinds of people about God. There's different ways we can shape and frame a story, depending on who we're talking to, to meet them where they are. Or how we write and use music to articulate things that are deeper than what we can merely say. As you probably picked up upon, there, were, there was a lot of uh, original music that we sang tonight. So if you were unfamiliar with the song, perhaps we wrote it here together, right? We, and we had... A, we had a process for doing that. So that's something that's, uh, that we engage in actively, this creative process. Um, today, the idea is we can think of our work of revelation as collective art, art that we do together, not just as a local community, but as a larger one across time and history and across space. So not just in the Philadelphia region, in the United States, in the whole world, right? That's the space I'm talking about. Not like with aliens, particularly. You with me? If we are going to engage in participating in the group project, I think we both have to withhold judgment and demonstrate humility while being assertive enough to know what we're doing and who we are, who we're being, is something that God gave us to do and be. I, I want to give you one example, I wish I had a photo of this, and maybe we can pull up one later, of how a collective art project, this was a literal collective art project, revealed the character of Jesus in the kingdom of God the world. So some of us live in Kensington, and in Kensington, as you might know, as a lot of the whole country really knows about this, there is um, an opioid crisis, some people have called it an epidemic. A lot of people that are suffering with addiction to... To drugs and it's tearing apart communities. People are dying, and it's making uh, the environment, in in some cases, inhospitable and difficult. You know, some people are uh, absorbing right at the front lines of this, absorbing the difficulty of this of this moment. You know, and, and and you have people like the New York Times who, from a distance, write about what a hellhole Kensington is, right? And they hyperbolically express the problems, and then you have policy wonks coming up with solutions from a far distance away about what to do, but really, what we're, what we, what, we have people that are right there experiencing it, and it's a little bit more complicated than can be summarized in an article or written on a piece of legislation. You know, there's people, there's lives, there's neighbors, it's all complicated, right? Complicated problems, complicated solutions, if we ever find any. And right in the middle of, 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 of this epidemic, of this problem, you have signs of life, so we have a we have the Heartland Farm there. That's that's a communal farm that's growing real things out of the earth, right? Things that we eat that nourish us. But also, this is like literally a collective art project. Dozens of people helped put up a mural of transformation, right? Of butterflies. This this symbolic um, expression of. And natural expression of what God can do in the world. It's a revelation of the kingdom of God right there where people need it. It's a, it's a light. It's a it's a light in what often feels like darkness. It's it's illuminating the world a little bit. That's an example of what I'm talking about. That's a very literal example of what I'm talking about. So they're not all um, literal, uh, physical, visual art but we're building something together and we're creating something together and we're coming to it with the posture of artists. We have a particular expression of our faith that can coexist with other expressions of our faith too. In God, in Christ, there is a universal truth that no one has a monopoly on. Monopoly means uh, a, a single person controls the whole market. Or a single company controls the whole market. No one controls the uh, truth of God. So we're humble enough to keep listening to where the Spirit is going next. We want to listen and respond and connect. But we're confident enough to know that God has given us a particular vision for how to express this truth now in our time and place. So we tell our part in the story because it's what we have and it's what we've been given. And this universal truth that God has given us is specific enough or particular enough to distinguish itself from false narratives. Or put another way, to distinguish itself from lies. The universality of God's truth and the multiple ways that we can express it does not allow for uh, evil or lies to be a part of it. And so it isn't um, everything. It's specific enough to, to distinguish itself from false narratives or lies. But it's generous enough that I think we can tell our story with a sort of open posture and an open humility. You know, we're holding Circle of Hope with open hands. We're holding the truth that God has given us with open hands because we acknowledge, as, the, as, as, the, as Paul, the writer of uh, 1 Corinthians, and, and this is specifically chapter 13, tells us, we see the whole world through a glass darkly. Maybe our expressions of light illuminate that dark glass, that, that, that mirror dimly lit. But we're still humble enough to know. Yeah, we're wading through the world too, and it's twilight, and it's hard to see everything. But I think I see this, and here's what God's giving me to do. Here's how the, here's how the uh, Apostle Paul put it. Uh, someone out loud read First Corinthians 13. Well, just that verse. For now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face, Now I know in part, then shall I know, even as also I am known. Paul's saying this then, this time, when the fullness of the revelation of God is born, we will see clearly, and now we just see in part, right? Through a mirror dimly lit, through a glass darkly. We can tell our part in this collective art um, that we call the revelation of the kingdom of God, we can tell it with humility but also with earnestness. The work we do can't be hidden or its purpose is defeated. It's supposed to pierce through the darkness. And so we broadcast it in ways that are receivable and knowable. We actually have to say it out loud and, and clearly show it because everybody's seeing the world through a glass darkly. It's hard to see, so we have to, if, we, if we intend to be seen, we have to be clear about who we are. And as I said above, there's a universality to it. Touches all things, connects with all things. And Paul is making that universality plain in this chapter. And so this is the love chapter in 1 Corinthians 13. And Paul reduces everything down in the whole Christian faith to love. Not unlike Jesus does when he gives us the great commandment, love God, love others. Paul says once again, love love is the heart of our faith. Everything else will fall, but love will endure. Here's how he says it a little bit earlier in the same passage. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. And then he'll go on a litany here and tell us all the other things that end, but love doesn't end. And of course, we see this evident all over the Bible. The theme of the whole Bible may very well be that God's love endures forever. So if love, the love that God authors, is the defining characteristic of this universal truth, Christ embodies this love. Christ embodies this love In incarnation, in manifestation, in crucifixion, in resurrection, and we celebrate that journey every year. Just so, just so you know, incarnation is Advent. Brian was telling us, manifestation, Epiphany, crucifixion, Lent, resurrection, Easter. We walk through this um, embodiment of love in the person of Jesus every year. that's, That's how we see it, that's the particular expression that we have. And so because this defining characteristic, love endures, love never ends, I think we have to be generous with both our contribution to this communal art project, but also with other people. I think we often get caught up, as I said earlier, in what is right and wrong, and we start creating boundaries and borders and walls that keep people in and out, and that can be appealing. But I don't think the generosity of the Bible, when it comes to tradition and storytelling, tells us to be so boundaryed and rigid. And I don't just mean the principles in the Bible that are explicit about welcoming the stranger. There is no a shortage of those. I'm not really talking about the Bible in a principled way. How I'm talking about its actual composition, how the stories are brought to life and what that means. And I think if we view it as creating art, we get lost into the... get away from the formulaic understanding of our theology. You know, it's not, it's not so much like math or science, it's more like art. And I don't mean to reduce uh, math or science to absolute things, because I think when you get to the uh, uh, avant-garde, the... Uh, the, the cutting edge of these fields, you find that math and science are also shrouded in mystery, too. That's the place that we're moving, in my view, and I, I, I think that the whole world that we live in is shrouded in mystery. And so there's things that we have to hold um, and trust and have faith in that are bigger than we can imagine, right? How do we express this love that God has given us. We have a particular way to do it, but the reason to be humble is because the whole operation is mysterious. You know, we're dealing with things that aren't very clearly seen, and so that gives us the license, the kind of hold forestall judgment as we work it out together. You following with what I'm saying? I mean, that there, is, that there is a world at all is a mystery. That you are something instead of nothing is a mystery. You know, if you walked into a forest and you saw a giant orb in the middle of the forest, you would wonder how it got there. Why don't we wonder how the trees got there or why there are trees at all? Right? Mysterious things are happening around us, and if we suspend our certainty for a second, we can encounter divine things that are a little bit beyond who we are, and then we might not be so arrogant as to write a specific theology that exactly describes God, but to hold together what God has given us and express it particularly, and also listen to others with humility. I'm deeply sympathetic to people that need to function with absolute rigidity and certainty, and I want to include them, but I also want to be generous too. There are seasons in my life where that kind of certainty is really important. And so I'm not, I'm not dismissing it out of hand. Nevertheless, I think the collective art project that we're on, that we're co-creators on, collaborators on, is evident in the Bible itself. As I said a few weeks ago, the Bible writers sometimes tell stories about the same events in very different ways. I, I explained how we even see the story of David, who we were dancing with a minute ago, differently depending on which section of the Bible it's in. They tell the story differently depending on who they're talking to. And they suffer no cognitive dissonance when they do this, and they suffer none when they also tell the story together. And I think you really see this in the Gospels, the four biographies that begin the New Testament, as well as the epistles. In telling the story of Jesus, the Gospel writers are, are, are drawing different portraits of Christ, and they coexist in harmony, not in competition, right? Something different's happening there. And even Paul's depiction of Jesus is different than how the gospel writers are saying it and so we're drawing a picture of who Jesus is in the world and being okay with differences and variation because we're painting a more universal truth when it's brought to its final composition the variation and diversity of the story are okay of the piece are okay with the early church as they composed it the differences weren't lost on them they just embraced them and thus we should too There is a universal truth in Christ, in love, that binds us all together, and the intention here is to keep holding us together. And and, and we as a community are doing our part in demonstrating the particularity of that truth as we know how, alongside other folks who are doing it with us. And I think that our project, that mutual collective work that we're doing, happens in community and dialogue. We say in Circle of Hope, dialogue Holds us together and protects our gravity. I wrote, keeps our gravity, it, it, it connects us to each other, it gives us something that's pulling us in. We talk to each other, we listen to each other as we try to move in a particular common direction. We, th- we think as a community we need a practical way to move forward and here's how we're doing it. We don't suspect we have a monopoly on the truth, we just need a specific way to apply this universal truth to our immediate context. And most recently we did that when we discerned our map together. We have a process called mapping that happens every year or so. This year the leaders listened to the body, the cells, thought about how we might enact our mission and vision this year. We compiled a lot of material, we sorted through it, our leadership team helped distill it. The pastors had a few open meetings where we helped shape it. We wrote a draft of this map, these three goals, sent it back out to the cells, they chewed on it like a like they chewed the cud again, and then and then we reshaped the map one more time. As and then we presented it yesterday to our council, which was open to everybody in the church, and they affirmed it. The details of the map are online; you can find them. I won't re- I won't uh, reiterate the them right now, but I want you to know that we have a communal process for how we discern the Holy Spirit, um, and our commitment to dialogue keeps us moving too. You know, part of our collective revelation of what God is doing is knowing that it's continually revealed. It's not static. It's not forever. It's not the red-haired white girl mermaid for eternity. We're moving with where the Spirit is going next. We keep listening and wanting to grow with where God is going in the world, and we admit we see it through a glass darkly. Being okay with the mystery that it's shrouded in allows us to extend grace both to ourselves for not being as far along in the journey as we thought we were, your past self that you think is dumb for not being as smart as your current self is, or your past church for the last 2,000 years that you think is dumb for not being where you are now, or someone else in the world that's going through a whole different thing and on a different part of the journey too. It allows us to extend grace because, yes, we're all navigating this through glass darkly. But we can confidently discern where we need to go to. You know, we, we understand that people need concreteness. And the most concrete thing we can offer is the revelation of God, the incarnation of Jesus in our very beings. We're the, we're the concreteness. This is the tangible expression that we're talking about. The different portraits of Jesus in the Gospels, like I said earlier, not limited to the Gospels, exist in harmony, not in competition. Likewise, the different portraits of Christ in the world live in harmony too. We keep looking for where God is going to show up and we keep listening. God reveals God's self in many ways and I wanna keep opening my eyes to them while being proud also, proud also of how God has revealed God's self to me and to us. Because I think we can generally be on the side of a kind of violent arrogance and our self-assuredness about who God is in the world. Or we can be in paralyzing um, insecurity about sharing who we are and what we're doing. Like you might think even doing that is coercing someone or oppressing them with an idea. And you wanna be very hands-off because you don't wanna do that. And so we're holding both of these things together. Can we do that? Can we both be humble and confident without being paralyzed or violent? Right? That's, that's a hard thing to do. So I, I, I want to hold on to what God has given us, allow the dialogue to bind us, listen to the cloud of witnesses, as the writer of Hebrews says, across time and space, and move with what God is going next. Let's keep working on that project together. Thanks for listening to Circle of Hope's Sunday Meeting Podcast. If you want to talk about it or get connected to a cell, you can find one under our Connect drop-down at circleofhope.net.